0: This episode is brought to you by Tegas, the only investment research platform built for fundamental investors. Think about how hard you are working to get the insights you need to make a great investment decision, how many hours you spend digging through public records and expert transcripts, or manually updating those complex models. Investors should compete on their ability to analyze investments, not how well they aggregate data. That's why Tegas offers a unified end-to-end research platform that combines robust qualitative content sets, up-to-date financial data, management and culture checks, and more, all in one easy-to-use, streamlined user experience. 95% of the top 20 global private equity firms use Tegas. Learn more and get your free trial at teegas.com/patrick.
1: To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out JoinColossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment
0: decisions. This is Dom Cook, and today we're breaking down the business behind the most popular sport in the world, football or soccer. It's a vast market. 3 billion people around the world watch the sport and more than 30 billion euros are spent within the football ecosystem in Europe alone every single year. But aside from this, a huge addressable market, reasonable revenue, is it actually a good business? Why do investors keep buying football clubs? Is there any economic rationale behind that? Is there a link between sporting and financial success? Has Middle Eastern money distorted the transfer market for good? Just some of the questions I posed to our guest, Dr. Rob Wilson, who is a football finance expert and head of the Finance, Accounting and Business Systems Department at Sheffield Hallam University. I really hope you enjoy this business breakdown of the business of football. So Rob, we've set ourselves an unenviable task to explain the business of football in the space of an hour or so. I think first, we probably want to draw some lines around the discussion. We could go on for hours, but we'll try and keep this within an hour. I think the goal really is to add some color to what running a football club entails the different models of ownership and why they're attractive assets to buy there's been particularly in the last year or two and some big numbers being thrown around some very important clubs in the world and hopefully we can dive into the reasons behind that stuff and maybe the right starting point is very very high level looking at the market itself how would you define the football market and maybe we will focus more on the european market today kind of its size and how that might compare to other sports in the world
1: well done you've given a really good intro there used the word colour, didn't you? So I think what we've seen in the football market, certainly over the last 20 years or so, is that it's certainly become much more colourful, very, very colourful off the pitch. When we talk about the financial health, we talk about administration, we talk about club spending significantly beyond their means. And then, of course, over the last two, three years, really, we've talked about some really significant investments coming into the game. And that's at all levels. So naturally, we will talk about what's going on at the top of the English Premier League as the most globally recognised football league in the world. But we can also start to see what's going on lower down the system. And I'm sure that listeners will have seen or heard rather about things to do with Wrexham and Ryan Reynolds taking over there. And there's some really colourful stuff we can talk about in that context. But. To answer your question more directly, what we've seen is almost an exponential growth in the size of the global soccer market that has really been driven by what we've seen happen in the English Premier League. And if we go back, and I'm a little bit of a history buff, I go all the way back to 1992 and the construction of the Premier League and what it was intended to do. It was always set out to generate more money. And what we've seen then periodically uh, each broadcasting deal has been renewed is this increasing value of broadcast rights deal, really competitive product, a product that is now broadcast to all four corners of the globe and has got massive, massive fan following. So what that has meant is that more money has gone into the game, players have got better, academy instructors have got more impressive, training has got better, the game has got faster and more physical and so on, and much more entertaining. And of course, what you see with entertainment is indeed even more money. And it's almost become a bit of a Hollywood blockbuster now, hasn't
0: it? And if we look at just taking segmenting the European leagues, I guess, at the moment, and I saw a stat saying it's probably a $30 billion market or Euro market, and you talked about how that's just exponentially grown since the early 90s, it's still fair to say that the English Premier League is a clear leader in terms of the leagues, particularly in Europe and then across the world. And what does that correlate with? Is it the competitive nature of the league? Because it's not the biggest market, even in Europe, in terms of the economy. So, is that the strongest link, or are there other things that play that's led that one to grow above and beyond the others?
1: I think that Premier League really got first mover advantage. You know, this new era, new dawn of what we now know as good European soccer, or, or certainly English Premier League soccer. And because they were at the vanguard, the forefront of all of that, they were the first ones into territory-based markets. So when they were selling broadcast deals, it wasn't just to a single national broadcaster. It was to different broadcasters across the world. And those broadcast markets started relatively small. And of course, you grow your following thereafter. And everybody else, all those other leagues, the La Ligas, the Bundesliga, the Serie A's, the Liga and in France, have all tried to at least try and keep a little bit of pace with the Premier League. But the reality is when you get that first mover advantage, you're able to really pull away from your opposition. And you mentioned there about competitiveness, I think as a line into your question. And what we've seen with the Premier League is that because of the volume of cash going in at the top through those big broadcasting deals, they've been able to transfer the best playing talent into those divisions, the best coaching talent and they've been able to develop the best academy systems and that then makes for a much much stronger product and to just dip into the core economic principles what you need in any sporting competition is what we call the joint nature of production so you can only deliver a product the game if you've got two teams that are participating against each other and that's what generates the product that fans will buy the broadcasters will buy that commercial sponsors will buy But within that competitiveness, you need those two teams to have a level of similarity, if you like. So the closer together they are in competition terms, the more likely it is that we're going to generate a bigger broadcasting deal. And we call that uncertainty of outcome. So we don't know what's going to happen at the end of the game. That means that we're much more compelled to watch it and to consume it and to pay for it. And because the Premier League has generated all of that cash, it is more competitive than those other five leagues in Europe. And what that has also meant is that those bigger clubs in those other respective European leagues have got bigger and bigger and bigger because they're competitive in their own right. So the likes of Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Juventus, more recently, of course, in France, Paris Saint-Germain. But it means that the rest of their domestic competition is much, much more stretched out, so much less competitive. And if you've got a team that's going to go to play its opposition and it's going to have an easy four, five, six 5 6 win, much less interesting to the broadcasters. And that's enabled the Premier League to keep this competitive advantage. And we've seen these successive leagues try to do different things in different markets. But the reality is they're just a long way behind the Premier League in terms of history. And I think the Premier League know that and are trying to capitalise on it still further.
0: Are there specific mechanics that either all the leagues employ or some do and some don't that play into that dynamic? Obviously, if you are competitive to begin with, you generate more broadcasting dollars. But then you have a choice as to whether to pay out the ones who win the most because they're arguably doing the most for your league. Or you can split the proceeds equally across so you retain that competitive element. So number 19 in the league has a chance to beat number one because they're on somewhat of an even keel.
1: This is where we start looking at the differences between the US and the European model for professional team sport. The US model typified by a competition that intends to be much fairer. So this unequal distribution of broadcast rights, the draft system, and all of those methods that are designed really to make sure that when you get to the Super Bowl, you should get two different teams every single year. And that's what drives the size and scale of those broadcast rights packages. And the fun fact, of course, about the NFL is that it's got the most expensive advertising space on global TV. It's that lucrative. And I think that's really driven by the interest in a game that is completely uncertain in terms of its outcome. Now, if you compare that with the European market, we've got a much more open system, if you like. It's based on Jeopardy. So you get the promotion, renegation. There are payments that you get for your finishing position. And I think. What we've seen since the advent of the Premier League really is a collective bargaining agreement for broadcast rights packages, which until very recently was different to what we saw in La Liga, where the big two, the Barcelona, the Real Madrid, actually soaked up about 90% of the TV revenue. And in the Premier League, what you get is an equal share of the domestic rights and the so-called big six, which we might extend to big eight now, given some of the investments that we've seen over the last year or so. The big six really started to unsettle things a few years ago to take larger shares of the international rights. You had teams like Liverpool coming out saying, well, if it wasn't for us, they you know, you wouldn't be generating these rights because no one really wants to watch. I think the example they used at the time was Stoke City, which I think was a bit disingenuous <laughs> at the time. A bit harsh. They tune in to see Liverpool and they forgot that joint nature of production that you need a Stoke City or a West Bromwich Albion or... A Chelsea football club to produce that joint production, which is what which allows you to sell your rights. Now, because of that open system, what you then get is a very, very spread out context in that division where the broadcast rights are now really driving performance in the division. So we talked earlier about competitive integrity. What you actually find is that because those big teams are getting so much bigger and then, of course, qualify for European competition, where they generate even more TV revenue. Is they're getting, they're pulling further and further away. Which, to go back to my example about the Liga, is exactly what we saw with the likes of Real Madrid and Barcelona, you know, completely uncompetitive compared to the likes of hetafe or Deportiva La Carino or teams like that. And that's really damaging to the competition. So, I think European clubs and investors into European clubs are still looking at the issues around a jeopardy position and how that might influence the revenues that they're able to generate.
0: And is that linked somewhat to the European Super League, which surfaced a couple of years ago? You talked about Barcelona and Real Madrid. they were two instigators of that particular league and it got quashed pretty quickly, but it seems to be murmuring in the background.
1: The bizarre thing about the European Super League is the Premier League essentially is the Super League. So it's got six or eight really competitive teams that are able to spend more money than any other team in Europe on player transfers that is able to hire the best coaches, pay the highest player wages, if that's a good thing. And they have almost gave away that competitive advantage that they had over all of those other European elites by conjuring up that Super League model. Now, I can completely understand where Juventus or Real Madrid or a Barcelona were coming from because they're looking across into England and seeing these huge sums being paid in terms of broadcast, massive sponsorships going in and really quite competitive divisions. And then, of course, seeing those English teams participate and do very, very well in in the UEFA competitions. And I can't remember the data off the top of my head, but you look back over the last five winners of the European Champions League, and I think most of those finals will have at least been competed by an English club here or there. That dominance of English teams in Europe is what really drove some of those European teams to think, yeah, we can have a Super League and things will get closer together. And of course, everyone wants to watch Man United play Real Madrid every single week. And I think they're a little bit misguided, but it would have been brilliant for those European clubs.
0: And I think it was pretty much modelled after the US model that you alluded to earlier as well, wasn't it? Right. I think we should probably drill down a level and talk about clubs. And I think first, I want to just flesh out maybe the catalyst for this discussion and how we got in touch with each other. And might be Manchester United and the discussions around over the last year or so in terms of whether that club is being sold, is going through a sale process. I'm still pretty confused about it. But really, the thing that I find interesting about this is it blends a number of different pieces together that we can then flesh out through the rest of the discussion. One of which being it's a public business listed in the US. And I think at the moment it has a market cap around three, three and a half billion dollars. The rumored sale price is well in excess of that, up at maybe seven-ish billion. It was bought for 750 million pounds back in 2005. You've got a Qatari club, so in the Middle East, where we've seen a lot of activity over the last year, particularly from Saudi. Obviously, Qatar held the World Cup as well. And so I think Manchester United encapsulates a lot of why we're having this discussion about the business of football and how things have changed and where money is coming from and why people might even want to buy a club in the first place. So there isn't really a question there, but I would love just to hear you riff on what you think about when you see the information coming out about Manchester United and that club being sold from your vantage point as an expert in all things football finance.
1: Well, look, Manchester United is one of the crown jewels of the sporting landscape up there with teams like the Boston Red Sox or the size and scale of the UFC. As a sporting property, as an asset, as a sporting asset, it is the pinnacle of what you could potentially buy and of course the numbers speak for themselves massive commercial deals have just signed another huge extension with adidas making the biggest in the market and all the fundamentals of manchester united by the stadium and some patchy sporting success over the last 10 years you know all the fundamentals are there for them and everybody tries to reach what manchester united have done Emphasised that about 750 800 million pounds worth of investment when the Glazers took over most of that of course was leveraged buyout out through some pretty expensive loans that they account and that they are looking to sell for around about 6 billion pounds or that's about 7 billion billion-ish US. So here's my crazy thought of the day. I think Manchester United is massively undervalued. I genuinely think that had we seen a bit more movement in the investment markets for European football clubs and for the, some of those crown jewels of European football, I don't think a valuation of around about 10 billion US is outside the realms of possibility, particularly when you think about the new things that we're looking at for the fundamentals of the investment proposition. So traditionally, we would look at revenue multiples. And I think somebody in in the Far East came out with a stat the other day that Manchester United should be earning like 10 times revenue multiples. So that would put them in the 7.5 billion pounds, which is approaching 9 billion US, isn't it? So he's getting closer to my number, which I quite like. Yeah, (laughs) I think what we need to look at with Manchester United is that investment proposition. So the stadium is in a bit of a state, it needs a huge amount of reinvestment. So you're talking about 1.5 billion US to deal with that. So let's start there. So 1.5 billion US there. They've got turnover of around about 750 million US. So let's do a revenue multiple of 10 on that. So that gives us then 7.5 billion. So that takes us to 8.59 billion, something like that. And then you've got this uneasy relationship with sporting success. Ten had clearly changing the style of play at Manchester United, bringing in some uh, grades, I think. So this season is going to be really fascinating to see where they end up finishing. But the one side of the investment proposition that we keep forgetting about is the value of fans. I've been doing some work with a group called the CLV Group, Customer Lifetime Value Group. CEO is a chap called Neil Joyce, and they propose that there are about a billion fans around the world for Manchester United. And if you look at the revenue earned by entertainment properties. I think if you look at someone like PlayStation, they generate about $1,200 through the average consumer on the PlayStation platform. So that's things like you buy a piece of kit, you probably replace a few of your remotes, you buy a subscription, you buy your games, you buy the ongoing stuff. I think for Boston Red Sox, that number goes down to around about $72. So it's like the monetization of an average fan. And then look at Manchester United, it's 50 cents across a billion. Across a billion people. So, all the focus for a sporting property tends to go on like match day experience. So, we can get in Old Trafford 73 ish thousand fans. So, you've only got season ticket revenue, concentrating all of your work on these 75,000 people that might go into your game week in week out. of those 75,000, lots of them are going to be season ticket holders. So, probably aren't going to be monetized because traveling to the game, and are consuming the game, they're then going back. If you compare that with the US sports, you know, this concept of tailgating before a game, an NFL game, all about monetization. You sell all the replicas when you go into the stadium, but it's all the opportunities then to be monetized away from that stadium. So if I'm watching Manchester United in Tokyo, why can't I have a similar matchday experience? Why can't I have an affinity to that particular football team? I might never be able to afford to go to Old Trafford but I can afford to buy a replica jersey. I can afford to buy a game pass, some stream content on my mobile. I'm interested in what's happening behind the scenes at the football club at training. And if you could just monetize a tiny, tiny proportion of those fans, you know, CLV reckon about $100 million, $150 million US is being left on the table, unearned revenue every single year. So you factor that into the revenue profile of Manchester United and you very, very quickly hit $10 billion.
0: There's some really interesting things I want to pull out from that. I guess the first biggest pushback would be that this is a publicly traded company. they are investors looking at exactly what you just talked about day in, day out. And the market has decided that it's around is worth $3, 3500000000 billion, which is a big disconnect from sort of like 3x, I guess, lower than what you just said you think it could be. Is And a piece of that you're talking about is what they should be doing in order to increase the revenue and then you put a multiple on that price. Is there also another component there of just being a buyer of this is also going to be an emotional piece of this, where someone just wants to own Manchester United and ultimately the price will be whatever they decide it to be. And it's not necessarily as financially linked to a multiple on earnings or future income generating opportunities, etc.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to use a classic British phrase, you've just hit the nail on the head. It's that concept of what we would call, again, in economic literature, the trophy asset hunter. And Abramovich did that, actually, at Chelsea years ago. The whole point was, I want to hold that Champions League trophy, aloft my head. And the rarity, the scarcity of the asset class is certainly driving those valuations. Manchester United, remember, partially floated, so that part of the club is worth three and a half billion. And we need to put some sort of value on the Glazer ownership there. They're, of course, looking for a return on investment. And we can't then ignore the types of potential investors that are then looking at that club. So you've got this fascinating battle going on in the Middle East around the acquisition of football clubs. We've got, of course, PSG. We've got Manchester City. Dubai haven't really invested too heavily, but then you've got this emergence of of the Saudi Pro League and what's going on in Saudi Arabia. So I think there's this to pardon the expression, a battleground for acquisition of sporting properties, which is clearly linked to huge amounts of oil wealth, whichever way you cut that particular coin, whether it's state funded or whether it is privately invested, who knows. And then you've got to compare Manchester United with somebody like Jim Ratcliffe at Ineos, who going under the radar a little bit. Essentially, Ineos are just greenwashing. Petrocos company, they've probably got a pretty bad environmental footprint and are actually using sport to rebrand the Ineos company as well. So trophy assets, the acquisition of that crown jewel, I think absolutely is driving these revenues and you want to be the winner in that context.
0: You certainly do. And then I guess if we just take a step back from Manchester United specifically and look at what goes into running a football club more broadly, what from your experience do the best clubs look like from the inside, both operationally, but then also financially? What do their revenue profiles look like, their costs and how they're financing the operation? Because it might be crude of me to say, but they don't look like particularly great businesses from the outside. (laughs)
1: No, it's not crude of you to say they are really not great (laughs) businesses to look at from the outside. It's an interesting proposition, actually. So a lot of people will talk about the business of football. That's what we're talking about on this podcast. And we'll talk about football clubs being genuine bona fide businesses. But we only need to look back at history to realize that stock markets in successive decades were sold an absolute bummer. And the cost control measures were just completely out of control. It wasn't unheard of to see football clubs spending almost twice what they earn on play wages. So when Mansour took over with the Abu Dhabi group at Manchester City, I think their wages to turnover ratio was like 198%. So in layman's terms, for every dollar they were earning, they were spending two. Just on players. Just on players. So that's notwithstanding development of your ground, your academy stuff, that is just first team playing squad and management stuff. Just insane. Now, we can add zeros or take zeros away, but the whole system prevails on this excessive expenditure. So when investors are looking at football clubs, very often finding loss-making organizations and the regulatory bodies. So in the UK, the English Football League are trying to put in cost control measures through things like profitability and sustainability rules. The Premier League have a similar version of financial fair play. If you play in a European competition, UEFA has what we now call financial sustainability rules. It used to be called FFP, Financial Fair Play. And those regulations are all designed to try and make those businesses at least break even. And then the really random fact about that, they talk about a break-even requirement, but they've got permitted losses of $60 over a three-year period. Come on. Are you saying that you can make a loss, but you can't make too big a loss, or are you saying you need these clubs to break even? The better clubs, of course, are making profits, but they tend to make profits by virtue of income that they can't control. And that's what makes this really interesting. So go back to Manchester United, huge amount of money going in through Premier League collectively bargaining, bargained TV rights. United don't have any control over that revenue stream. The only revenue streams they have control over is what can they sign commercially, what can they generate from matchday crowds. And then to go back to that previous point, this fourth revenue generation, this fan lifetime value, what can they get from that And some of those bigger clubs have got good fundamentals. Some of them have got some really ropey fundamentals. You look at what Chelsea have been doing in the transfer market just recently. I think three transfer windows will probably hit around about a billion pounds of spending. Obviously, having to sell players in that context can't make that sort of loss. But it makes the fundamentals really tricky, which to go back to the Manchester United deep dive is actually why it's probably taking so long to go through some sort of takeover because of the diligence that you've got to go through to do an acquisition of that size.
0: And that fourth pillar you talked about with Manchester United and also here, you don't hear about a tonne particularly at this point in time, you always hear about broadcast sponsorship or commercial agreements, which is just your shirt sponsors, et cetera, and then match day revenues, which again, there's a finite limit to that is how big your stadium is. I guess your percentage of season ticket holders and also boxes tend to fetch a nice price for you as well relative to just ordinary seats. But so what's the deal with this fourth pillar? Why aren't people monetizing their customers, if you like, at a higher rate? Is that something to do with regulations? Is it just a new earning stream that people haven't really caught on to yet? What's going on?
1: I genuinely think there's so much intense focus on match day goers, the people that are going to the game on the, I was going to say Saturday afternoon, but the reality is they go to a game every day of the week at the moment because of the way the broadcast happens. And I think fans are thirsty to be satisfied. And so many clubs have got issues here, there and everywhere, You know, whether it's condition of stadium, whether it's the fans aren't happy with the particular manager or coaching team, if they're not happy with the ownership, but there's so much noise going on around The operation, I don't think they've got the resources necessarily to start looking into these other options. And I've started to coin the phrase, you know, it's almost like we need to acknowledge the UFCization of sport because what the UFC have done, of course, is monetize everything. But they've done it through content generation, owning the rights to all of their content, and then selling fans, these UFC fight passes that give you a little bit of access behind the scenes to a little bit of training. So organizations are doing that fourth pillar. I just don't think that we're seeing it, certainly on any sort of scale in European football, which is why I think it's really exciting on the timeline of the development of European football, because everything evolves. We heard the last few years around things like NFTs and fan tokens, which have had a bit of a bad rap at times, but there's something in there about fan engagement. The median might not be quite right, but the concept of fan engagement and being able to earn revenue through that fan engagement is absolutely... That fourth revenue stream that clubs have got to look at.
0: And as you're talking there, it reminds me of things like Amazon Prime's all or nothing documentary, and they've gone in with a few particular Premier League teams, but also other football clubs around the world. How are those agreements structured? Is it that the team agrees that Amazon can bring their cameras in and they'll get a cut of the rights or is it an outfront payment? How does that work? And does that play into this broader theme?
1: Again, it's a diversified way of cutting your revenue profile. The mechanics of how Amazon are doing it, I dare say, will be linked to the broadcasting of Premier League football, so it gives them access to some of those clubs. And certainly, those clubs are seeing it as an opportunity for revenue generation. What's been really interesting is the number of subscribers that we then get to things like Amazon Prime that are then consuming multiple bits of that content. So if you watch the All or Nothing documentary, you probably watch it on The Manchester City case, the Tottenham Hotspur case, you probably were watching the stuff in NFL, and it probably started all the way back with the All Blacks, didn't it? And you're consuming sport content, which is great for Amazon, but also demonstrates to the club that behind the scenes, that dressing room situation is really powerful. And and Netflix have done the same with Sunderland Till I Die. To go back to one of my very opening lines, if you look at Wrexham, the Disneyfication of what Wrexham have been able to achieve with that Hollywood star glitz and glamour, they've generated more from their docu-series than they've spent in player transfer fees over the last sort of months. So there's clearly something in storytelling and consumers consuming that content. And that brings us on something really interesting is that if you look at the average age of a match day spectator in the Premier League, I think it's about 52. Wow. But 52-year-olds aren't watching all or nothing docu-series. It's the 16 to 24 market that nobody can seem to crack that want their content on demand, that actually don't really want to sit down and watch 90 minutes of live sport. They want to consume highlights packages, which is why I think this whole broadcast market, this fan lifetime value proposition, it just becomes really, really interesting. I don't have all the answers to where it's going to go. I'm just absolutely sure it's going somewhere.
0: And that's where teams can really make a big difference. I'm stunned that 52 is the average age of a Premier League spectator. That's incredible. It's a product of the cost, though, as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So the
1: costs have crept up, and typically you would have your season ticket from a very, very young age. And just the way the market has developed and how technology has changed and how our viewing habits have changed, it's meant that the age has gone up for those match day goers. It's worse in rugby union, you know, it's probably even older, without having the data to hunt.
0: Yeah. And the cost of going to watch a rugby match these days is extortionate. If you can think about it. Yeah, <laughs> One thing I've been interested to watch is how many clubs are building new stadiums and obviously the upfront investment and Tottenham is probably a good case here. I think they had to take out a billion pounds of loans or something to build this amazing new stadium. The upfront investment is huge, but it seems to be worth it for these clubs to grow their stadiums so then they can increase their match day ticket revenues. Is that truly a needle mover? What sort of payback time are they looking at for these stadiums to pay for themselves? Because it seems like there are probably easier ways to generate more dollars, some of which we've just talked about, than to build a brand new stadium.
1: There are. There's two things here. So take Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Their average match day takings have gone up by about 40%, I think. The speed of transaction is much, much quicker. They've been able to leverage a much, much broader array of commercial corporate hospitality type areas. So that's moved their revenue needle, but it's moving the smallest part of their revenue profile a very, very small amount through what is a substantial investment. So I'd hazard a guess something like 30, 35 years is probably the payback period on that particular stadium. And that, of course, is if you're not investing heavily into the transfer market and you're not paying these player wages. So I think the time horizon for the return on investment from the stadium reinvestment is excessive, which is probably why the Glazers haven't done that at Manchester United because they can't extract enough value from it. I think the other reason, though, that clubs are starting to invest in stadia is because they don't want to be left behind. And five years ago, Manchester United fans would say this stadium really needs some work, but the general market wasn't saying that. The away fans would say how the section of Old Trafford in the southeast corner was pretty ropey and not very good, but the volume, the amplification of that narrative wasn't very high at all. It's only since the teams have started to build those stadiums that we've really seen the amplification of that narrative go up. So... You need to keep pace with the competition and you go over and see Bayern Munich in their arena. You've got Atletico Madrid, fabulous stadium over in Madrid. You know, the big developments going on at Real. Manchester City have just announced you know, a huge redevelopment of part of their stand to build a fan park. So I think you need to keep pace with the competition because there's almost an expectation that if you're going to charge me $60 to go in and watch a game, I want my seat to be not broken and I want to be able to get a beer in the concourse or some food that isn't looked like it's been scraped off the floor. So that's all <laughs> of the regeneration, isn't it? Of stadium infrastructure, but of course it's very, very
0: costly. That makes tonnes of sense. And then the third big pillar of this is commercial. And there's a link here between what you talked about in the U S market and the stadiums and sort of the juice to be squeezed out of commercial arrangement for clubs. And this is a huge piece of their income stream. And I saw something that you'd written about how I guess, football in general, but particularly European clubs and the English Premier League are way behind on things like naming rights for stadiums and being able to monetize those aspects of their club, looking, I guess, across the Atlantic and seeing what US sporting teams have been able to do throughout, I guess, the suite of their business in terms of turning those into commercial opportunities. Can you just talk a little bit about how that is developing in football and where you see opportunities for them to expand, whether that's looking across the Atlantic or other areas of the world?
1: so yes, I mean, this probably links to the stadium redevelopment question, actually. It's probably the third part of that argument, as you say. It goes back to the big differences between the US model of team sport and the European model. So the franchise-based system in the US lends itself to, we can move that team to that particular city infrastructure, build a new stadium as part of that real investment in that city. And that enables us, because it's very new and it's very shiny, to sell those stadium naming rights and commercial opportunities to new companies. What you have in the UK generally that we also see through the Premier League, is this cultural almost inertia that says, this football club has existed for over 100 years. It's always played there. It's always played in this particular colour. That's our stadium. Don't go near it. Old Trafford is called Old Trafford. Highbury, where Arsenal used to play, was Highbury. They were only able to rename that the Emirates Stadium because they moved Stadium and they built a new one. At Manchester City, the City of Manchester Stadium, which was built for the Commonwealth Games in 2002 and essentially gifted, by the way, to Manchester City, so they didn't have that upfront cost. Rebranded the Etihad Stadium, so it's happening, but it tends to happen with the new stadium infrastructure builds and where you don't have that and a really deep-seated historical connection to a community. Because unlike the American model, don't pick up Manchester United and move it down to London because it's there's a better franchise value there. And then, of course, you would be able to rebrand the stadium. But Old Trafford is Old Trafford. It's got pretty ropey seats because it's not in, in the best of conditions, I And mean, you can never, ever sell the naming rights to that. And if you go back again a couple of years and look at the Newcastle United story when Mike Ashley was the owner before Public Investment Fund in Saudi Arabia came in, tried to rename St. James's Park the Sports Direct Arena, and you've got 100,000 plus. Geordie's going absolutely wild that their owner didn't understand the nature of the club and was moving. It's just an argument you just don't want to get into because the backlash is too big. Yeah, the behavioural side is so interesting.
0: The last couple of pieces on the club side that I wanted to touch on with you, one is regulations and how that fits into running a football club. And the thing that I always focus on is financial fair play. And you mentioned some of the other pieces of regulation in and around European football is exactly how much of an influence that has on the running of football clubs. Because periodically you'll see, and Manchester City has had this very recently, cases being brought against clubs for overstepping the mark in terms of financial fair play or whatever the regulation is. But then as a fairly impartial observer, there never seems to be too much slap on the wrist, but that's it. Please educate me on why I'm wrong or if I'm not wrong. What's going on there?
1: So if you go... Pre-2011, when financial fair play was first introduced by UEFA, you had a football industry that was littered with examples of financial mismanagement, of clubs teetering on the brink of not being in existence. Now That has a tribal impact on communities. These football clubs are big business for not just themselves, but also the local communities that they're situated in. And you also had then this excessive spending by some of the big, powerful clubs that was distorting the European competition. And we go back then to competitive balance and the importance of joint natural production. So you kind of said, look, we've got to stop this. These clubs are really important cultural artifacts, but they also need to be competitive and be able to wash their face financially. So financial fair play, basically, and in very, very brief terms, means that clubs have to make sure they don't spend any more than what they earn. and. There are also then limits to what investors can put into the club to make sure their income profile is, which is why Manchester City have perhaps been tarnished by some of their activities around the regulations because you had things like signing of sponsorship deals that were delivered by companies that didn't exist or were delivered by companies that really didn't generate the sorts of value that they would need to generate to hand over £50 million or 60, 70 million dollars a year in terms of a sponsorship agreement. And you've got two levels. So you've got the UEFA competition. So if you participate in European competition under UEFA regulation, then you've got Premier League stuff and then Football League. La Liga have a similar method. They do salary cost management. All of the major leagues have a level of regulation and licensing about them. And it's designed to make the clubs more stable from a financial context. And when we start looking at the investment landscape, That's why football clubs are becoming more attractive to potential investors, because the regulatory framework that sits around them makes them a de-risked investment, Notwithstanding the fact they could still get relegated and lose everything. So that's what the regulations are kind of there to do. What I think we need to remember is, and this is where the Manchester City case becomes really interesting, Manchester United were broadly dominant in all of the Premier League era. Arsenal had fleeting success. But... Every competition needs somebody else to challenge because if you don't, it becomes really boring. So Bayern Munich pretty much win the Bundesliga every year. It's really boring as a competition. Juventus were doing the same in Syria. It's a really boring competition. La Liga was always contested by Barcelona, Real Madrid, and more recently, Atletico have broken into that. They're not attractive competitions. What makes the competition attractive is the competition. So whilst... Manchester City were allegedly breaching financial fair play. Let's not forget, it was probably good for the Premier League brand and it's probably enabled them to sell bigger TV rights. Whilst the other clubs might be a bit grumpy because Man City are running away and winning in league titles, they were doing so with a brand of football that was exciting to watch. They were doing really well in European competition and that has a league benefit as well. I talked very, very briefly about Rugby Union. We saw something similar in... In that sport with breach of salary cap. It ended up being good for the league as a whole. So we've got to be really careful with the application of those regulations and then what charges obviously then follow.
0: What generally are the penalties that they do or have or can impose?
1: Well, you will tell you that the penalties range from fines to point deductions from competition expulsion and Premier League would say the same. When you look at the magnitude of some of the charges that say Man City have been hit with this 115, I think there's about 30 of them that are really quite serious. Ultimately, I'd be looking at thinking, well, if that's proven, that's expulsion from the Premier League. And then you probably do a deal with the English Football League. say actually they can't participate and absolutely drop them down to National League. But I'm a Manchester United fan, so I probably would say that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I guess, one, it probably gets drawn out in the courts for a long time. But two, to your point, they have to be very careful as to what they do because ultimately they've helped the product of the Premier League enormously over the last five, 10 years.
1: The Man City case is interesting because obviously they took it to CAS when they were charged by UEFA, and they weren't proven innocent in that case. I need to be careful how I choose my words here because I don't want to get told off by any of the Manchester City lawyers. But So they weren't proven innocent. The, the judgment was that they were time-barred from challenging the payments that had been put in because UEFA have a statute that says – if this exceeds X number of years, then you can't be charged for it. So got away with it, in my book. The Premier League don't have those same time barred statutes, which is why they've come out with this set of 115 charges. But some of them are really minor. They're like you're reporting was slightly wrong in that in that column. You've put a figure erroneously in that one. So let's strip out all the noise. There's about 25, 30 charges that are pretty serious to them. And but the Premier League will then absolutely be looking at how significant was the breach. And then remember that Manchester City can probably afford better lawyers than the Premier League. So you end up in this courtroom battle. And what history tells us is that if you've got enough resource, you can probably make anything go away. And there's part of me that thinks if you've got the best lawyers and the best accountants, you're probably going to win whether you're right or wrong.
0: I think that's probably fair. I would say it's going to be interesting to watch. I'm not sure if that's actually true. We'll find out what happens.
1: <laughs> be interesting to see the outcome. it be interesting to see the response of the other clubs in the context of that. And I think Premier League will be weighing up its options with regard to if we find them guilty for that particular charge you know what does that mean for everybody else or if we find them not guilty then how's the rest of the competition going to respond so it's a very very fine balancing act and look at the east side of Manchester Manchester City's investment in that part of the world has been unrivalled the fundamentals of the club going forward and what they've done is absolutely brilliant you can't fault it and if they've had to circumvent a regulation to achieve that, you'd probably say the greater good. It might have been worth them doing. On a sporting competition, Aguero still scored that goal that won them the league over Manchester United on goal difference.
0: It's a very, very delicate balance. If you're talking about on this section, how strong is there a link between sporting and financial performance? You could argue spend more, win more, or maybe you know long-term sustainability relies on you being somewhat profitable or not hugely loss making and you have the ability to cover those debts in the years that you aren't profitable
1: so if i had the answer to that question dom i think i'd be (laughs) working in and around a game rather than in a university (laughs) talking about it what i can tell you is this a guy called dr dan plumley and i at sheffield business school work very close together have done for, for a number of years i've written a series of papers done bunches of statistical analysis on this exact concept. So what is the relationship between sporting and financial success? So what I can tell you with statistical significance and absolute confidence is that sporting and financial performance are inextricably linked. What I can't tell you is which one drives the other because we don't know. So we can say that if you are financially successful, you are likely to be successful in a sporting context. To your point, you can afford to buy more players and be more competitive but more interestingly, perhaps, if you are successful in a sporting context, you will also be more successful in a financial context. So if we take a club like Brighton and Hove Albion, for instance, much, much smaller club to a Man City, or Manchester United, a Chelsea Liverpool and so on, but are extraordinarily successful on a sporting basis based on their resource envelope and are able then to transfer players back out of the club, which is making them very, very successful financially. So... I'm sorry, I can't answer your question definitively. We know they're linked. We just can't look out which one drives
0: the other. No, well, that's interesting in itself, to be honest. And then if we shift gears a little bit and talk about investors and some of the, we touched on it a bit with Manchester United and a few other clubs. Before we get into some specifics, can you just go through generally the ownership profile or models that you see in football itself?
1: To overlay a bit of history to this, because they've evolved slightly over the, the last decade, if not the last 20 years or so. Now, typically, we would talk about ownership types as profit maximizers or utility maximizers. So go in, try and extract lots of value or go in, put some resources in and try and make sure that utility on the pitch is as successful as it can be. And then we saw the emergence of different types of owners. So typically, in when any football club across Europe, it would tend to be wealthy business person buys local club, tries to run them like they've run their, I don't know, flooring business or a real estate business, fails because of the emotional attraction of sport and the just stupid decisions that get made, sells club to another wealthy business person to then repeat cycle. And it was rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Then kind of emergence of Premier League, we saw stock market model start to emerge. Tottenham Hotspur, Chef United, Manchester United all floated on the stock exchange, generated some pretty decent amounts of capital, reinvested those in playing squad, no dividends to investors. And Most of those clubs ended up then delisting late 80s and through into the early and mid-90s. The stock market model, funnily enough, in our ownership research, is still the most successful from a sporting and financial point of view. I think that's because you're accountable to others. So rather than just your board, if you're not going to pay a dividend, you've got to explain why you're not paying that dividend and what your longer-term strategy is. And then we had the emergence of what we called trophy asset hunters, which we've touched on. So those owners that really didn't care how much they were putting in because they wanted to win those trophies. And then we saw the emergence of what we now call in win maximization. So kind a large swaths of cash going into a business to try and maximize the winning mentality, which I think probably links to the, the trophy asset to a certain extent. And then over the last few years, we've seen the emergence of much, much different types of finance, whether that's private equity, whether that's sovereign wealth funds, state ownership, and then you kind of get into conversations around sport washing and all that stuff. So we've got a long timeline of these emergence of different ownership types that probably started with local person that had done pretty well for themselves and then lost a fortune.
0: Yeah. The one that really sticks out to me is the private equity surge in the last few years. Why in particular? I mean, if I think about private equity generally, they're very focused on the numbers and they will be owners for a defined period of time, whether that's five or 10 years, and then they'll want to sell it for some profit and move on to another asset. What is it that they've seen in football that has, has led to them entering the market?
1: I think generally speaking, undervalued asset, class, which links back to the regulatory framework that now exists. As an investor, whether you're private equity or otherwise, you're always trying to de-risk your investment proposition so that you can extract maximum value when you ultimately sell. And through those tweaked regulations, the legal cases that go when somebody gets challenged for a potential breach, and the scale of the broadcast deal, which probably protects your position in the league. So if you're able to buy a Chelsea football club, chances of you being relegated now are so, so slim because of the gap that exists between the Football League and the Premier League, that you're almost buying a risk-ish free asset because of the regulatory context. So that means that the whole system is slightly undervalued because they've not generated the revenue values that we think are on offer. Clear Lake and Blueco going into Chelsea, probably, I think they ended up about 2.7 billion, so 3 billion-ish US, plus a bit of additional investment in stadium infrastructure, plus then the investment that they put into playing squad is still... I think, relatively low. And normally we talk about private equity on a five to six year time horizon. Go in, try and sort IT governance, put a new board in, generate some additional revenue, invest, stabilise, sell. We were talking about private equity going into European football clubs and that timeline probably extending to 10 to 12 years because it's still pretty underdeveloped. But a club like Chelsea, I think, particularly with the transfer spending that we've seen over the course of the last windows, probably still says to me, yeah, five, six years, they could be on the hind heels and out for 6 billion US, something like that, which would be a tidy return.
0: For those investors in particular, is the equation really increased revenues? Because from my vantage point, there isn't a huge amount they can do on the cost side. Player wages, player transfer, market prices just seem to be going on one way and that's up. And that really is the bulk of your costs as a football club. We talked about stadiums a little, but is it really on the revenue side that they're just trying to drive incremental value?
1: I think so. So you can't do a lot with the broadcasting because you can't sell your own rights, but you can definitely do more on the commercial side. You can definitely do a bit more on the match day experience side. And then we're back into that fourth revenue pillar, aren't we? I think it's totally untouched. So I think that's where the real proposition is. And it's interesting, actually, post-COVID, the transfer market has been relatively flat. So it retraced a bit immediately after COVID. I think one or two clubs are driving the valuations back up to what we saw just pre-COVID, which was relatively high. Let's not beat around the bush. But I do think there's a level of sensibility that's starting to go into the transfer market. So I hear a lot of narrative coming out of clubs now that they're benchmarking players into certain brackets and they're just simply not prepared to go over those values to try and protect that level of cost control at least a little bit. And of course, When your rivals are looking at signing the same player, the valuation goes up a bit, doesn't it?
0: That is unexpected and brings me on to the sovereign wealth funds, I guess, that have also entered the market in recent years. In particular, if I think about the Saudi Pro League and their activity in the transfer market, Neymar this week has just moved there and reported to be on 150 million euros a year. (laughs) All right, if you can get it. Yeah, you're telling me it seems as though they are distorting the market prices of this stuff. But you just told me that you think actually it's settled down and seems about your high end, but not totally irrational. What does a force like the Middle East and some of these either sovereign wealth funds who are using football to a certain end, but not necessarily thinking about it from an economic return standpoint, how does that change the landscape of football for you? So I need
1: to be really careful how I answer this because I could end up with a metaphorical <laughs> yes. leg on my face next year. The Saudi Pro League is doing very much what the Chinese Super League did probably five or six years ago, which was acquiring playing talent. Now, critically, most of that playing talent is at the end of its career life cycle, not in terms of age, but in terms of transfer value. So if you sign a player that's 28, 29, 30 years old, the chances are it's a diminishing return. You're not going to generate that same level of transfer deal. And that's what we've seen the Saudi Pro League do. So they're paying strong money for players that probably wouldn't be transferred within a domestic competition or certainly around about Europe. Now, Harry Kane would be the exception to that rule because I still think he's peak performance. But if you look at most of the players that have transferred, they've gone over that peak performance curve. They will still be very good, get me wrong but they are on the decline of their career. Now, where it will get really interesting, this is my caveat now, (laughs) is when the Saudi Pro League are able to extract a player that is 23-24, that is just on the start of their curve for peak performance. Now, Mason Mount would have been a good example of that. 24-year-old, year left on his contract, if the Saudi proposition was really strong right now, they'd have been able to extract somebody like him, probably paid Chelsea 80, 90 million pounds as opposed to the 55 that he ended up at Manchester United. So I think the overall transfer values that we're seeing, when we look at the age profile of those players, the Saudis are paying much bigger money than those older players would command in their domestic markets. But those older players wouldn't necessarily be transferred in the first place. So Man United were trying to get rid of Ronaldo, weren't they? It was a good deal for him. Sadio Mane at Bayern Munich wasn't doing particularly well. It was a good move for him. Karim Benzema at Real Madrid. So for the selling club, it's really attractive because actually you can get rid of an ageing and unvaluable asset for a few quid, which actually then goes back into the system, doesn't it? So whilst the Saudis are buying players left, right and centre, those clubs in Europe are in receipt of those transfer fees and are able to then reinvest across the European market. So I think it's going to be interesting how they, they battle for TV rights. And I think the deal they've done with the broadcast is only worth about half a billion US. Compare that to the Premier League deal it was about 10 billion US. There's still a long, long way to go in terms of the attractiveness of the competition. It is a force that is making a big mark in the market. And I think we need to be really cautious about how we deal with it. Yeah, we'll see.
0: That makes a ton of sense though. And as a lever from a club's perspective, how important is the transfer market to them is potentially an avenue where they can also generate an extra source of income if they're able to either buy young players or develop them and then sell them for big money in the window. Is that something that clubs really think about or do they just say, we'll try and be net neutral over a reasonably long period of time?
1: I think it depends on the club and the status they've got in a particular division. So some clubs are looking to extract big transfer receipts for their playing talent they've developed. Southampton, we've talked about Brighton and Hove Albion today. Those typically smaller clubs that have almost decided we're not going to break into that elite group of clubs, but we're going to do very well and we're going to sell to them and make some money. And over time, we might be able to get into those groups. And what I think is really fascinating recently is how those elite clubs that once just disposed of players, so it's like buy fairly high price, pay lots of wages, end up getting rid of that player for next to nothing. So their, and I hate the term, net transfer spend was always negative What we're seeing is those elite clubs actually generating positive returns on their net spend. And Chelsea are a really good example, you know, 900 million in transfer acquisitions. And I think over the last three windows, they've got a net profit on their net spend of about 150 million, which helps them with their financial fair play compliance. So again, back to regulatory framework, the importance of player sales in the context of balancing your books is really quite important.
0: I think we've done a fantastic job of laying out the key themes and ideas and things that people think about in terms of the business of football from a club's perspective. Where do the fans fit into all this? Because they're clearly the lifeblood of all of this stuff. We've touched on them briefly, but we haven't really talked about them in any context. But ultimately, without fans, there wouldn't be any clubs and none of this discussion would be possible. It feels like they'd be marginalized to some extent, but where do they fit into these plans? How much influence can they exert? So you do see from time to time protests and things working to shape the club in the way that the fans would want
1: so let's go back to history books you look at match day attendances from the 1940s onwards and what you saw is a bit of a peak in the uk in 1966 because we won the world cup for the first no time and then they steadily declined i think they went from a high like an average of forty four thousand fans per match by the time we got into the mid 80s and you've had a couple of big disasters at Stadia, very, very disrepair. And then, of course, we had the Hillsborough disaster as well. The average matchday crowds were about 16,000. So when Sky bought the two digital satellite companies came together to build the Premier League with these lucrative broadcast rights, most analysts would have said, no, nah, there's no money in football. There's nobody going. There's no way you can extract value. Actually, what we saw from the advent of the Premier League is match dead then start to creep back up. So, to your point, fans are still the lifeblood of these clubs. Without them, broadcasters aren't interested. Go back to it. Why don't B Sky B or B In Sports or Desert spend billions on broadcasting the Bundesliga or La Liga or Serie A? It's because you've got half empty stadiums, because they're not a competition. Integrity with the two teams that are playing each other very often. And therefore, the spectacle on the television is not as attractive. So, without those match day going fans, you don't create an environment in the stadium. You don't generate ultimately the product. And it's interesting that you go to that fourth revenue stream that we've talked about, that customer lifetime value or fan lifetime value. That's where the savior of club finances and the control through club finances actually sits. So, I think fan engagement, understanding the the profiles of your fans, understanding what they want, being responsive to them in some sort of context is really important. And you only need to look at the protests that go on around club ownership. You only need to look at what happens in stadiums when fans are unhappy about managers and coaches and players. The boards ultimately stand up to be counted. And how many clubs over the years could we say have fired their manager because of fan opinion rather than what that, board of directors really wanted to deliver through the coaching setup. And that's where the emotion comes back in. It's such an emotive business, which makes it quite short term, which
0: naturally means those fans are really, really important. Yeah. And changes the dynamics from a business standpoint massively. Is there anything you think that we haven't really touched on that you think about a lot as it relates to the business of football in your day-to-day work?
1: I think the way that Premier League have been at the vanguard of those broadcast rights is quite important. So this expansionist policy that they've been able to chase, whilst they're generating big money in foreign markets through TV revenues, they're only really scratching the surface. And there are huge markets that are still up for grabs, which is why Liga have gone into India to stream free content because the population in the Indian subcontinent is about 1.2 billion, something like that. So if you can get some followers in those territories, you're really going to generate big amounts of cash. It's why we see such aggressive US pre-season tours happening and tours to the Far East and so on. And that expansionist policy needs to be done in conjunction with the league and with the clubs. Otherwise, we're going to start hearing about potential super leagues or pan-national leagues and all this stuff. So if we as fans want to keep consuming the content that we do in the way that we do it, we've got to keep our voices heard and make sure the league organisers pay attention.
0: And how much do the league and the clubs work together on that stuff? They think strategically, okay, the Indian market is important to us in terms of the amount of eyeballs and engagement potentially and long-term value that we could create out of that market if we do this right. I want these three clubs to go and tour India next summer. We're going to try, in conjunction with that, we'll be doing stuff from a league perspective. Does that happen or is it a bit more haphazard than that?
1: Yeah, well, at least publicly it doesn't get talked about (laughs) happening like that. not sat in a Premier League boardroom. So I couldn't say whether they do or they don't. My view, my subjective view is that, so league organisers like La Liga are much more strategic in the context of where they think they need to position the sporting competition. I think the Premier League have lost a bit of control and the big six are are so powerful now that the revenue profiles are bigger than the Premier League in itself. I think there's a lot of self-interest that drives what we see in the Premier League. and So I don't think it's as joined up as it really ought to be. I think there's a reliance on clubs in the Premier League to allow the Premier League to go out and negotiate, but actually some of those clubs would rather do it themselves. We need to be really careful about how that ends up
0: washing out. Yeah, and I'm sure necessity drives some of it. The Spanish leagues probably looking at the English Premier League and seeing that they're at a disadvantage to begin with. So where can they go and find additional dollars quickly? Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate your time and your insight over your career that you've shared with us over the last hour or so. We always finish these discussions with the same question. And that's what lessons you've learned that you could share with our audience from covering this aspect of football over your career. What would you highlight as a couple of things that you either apply in your career or you would urge other people to look at or think about as they go about their lives?
1: I think from a positive context, the ability to take the odd risk I think is really important. So you look at a club like Southampton, trying to develop that playing talent at a very, very young age and then bringing them through to the first team to give them minutes, I think as a longer-term strategy is much more effective for those teams than it is just to import some talent from a different club. Of course, the proposition there is going to be different depending on what club you're in. But if Manchester United or City can generate homegrown playing talent, bring them through to their team. They actually can generate some pretty big sums through that. So take some risks on playing talent. Don't be afraid to generate new ideas in new markets. Some of them will fail. Some of them will be really, really lucrative. And without trying to finish on a downer, I've fallen out. I love with the game a little bit. I used to love going and watching a game of football on Saturday afternoon. But since I've been studying it and researching it so intensively over what is now just over a 20-year career, it's become so business focused and it's lost that real compassion and enthusiasm that I've seen and actually get a bit more enjoyment when I go and watch Sheffield FC locally, which is step seven. So way, way out of the big football pyramids, their story is that the world's oldest football club and that the narrative is quite nice. And you can see football for what it was almost a hundred years ago or more rather than these big sanitized stadiums, but I love sport, So I'm always going to carry on watching it. It's just taken the edge off slightly.
0: Well, what an interesting place to end. I'm sure a lot of that has to do with your day job. But we certainly appreciate what you've been doing for the last 20 years and being able to condense that knowledge into the last hour or so. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us.
1: No, it's been great, Tom. Thanks ever so much for having me on.
0: To find more episodes
1: of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary,
0: check out joincolossus.com. That's dot com.